1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Now a special Talk Radio 1210 WPHT presentation. It's reading, writing, and reason. Now here's your host, Dom Giordano.
2: Hey everyone, welcome in to our weekly roundup with Dom Giordano and Dan Borowski at the Controls Reading writing and reason where we take a look and boy a lot of the focus is on college now incredible array of things happening here at reading writing and reason our focus on the money spent the agenda over some of these cultural issues all the way down to pre-k through college but college is where we start today and on the college level this stuff never would have come out before we have a lawsuit here at university of pennsylvania making national news the dismissal, essentially, of the president there, the problems, investigation, anti-Semitism. They had the Palestinian Writers' Conference there that caused all kinds of issues prior to October 7th. Well, now there's a lawsuit filed by Saul B. Rosenthal alleges that Penn's trustees gave business scholarships that he put in a lot of money for, for students that didn't have means but might be spectacular business students he donated around 168,000 to aid these financially burdened business students he's alleging that the University of Pennsylvania instead gave some of the money maybe substantial amounts allegedly to student athletes meaning ball players people on Penn's teams i don't think it was basketball or football i think it was track and field allegedly the funds were reserved for scholarships that benefited Ac- Acad- uh, economically disadvantaged students in the Wharton School, according to the complaint. Do you notice, too, that the Wharton School at Penn seems to be always in the center of a lot of the stuff, because let's face it, I mean, they're normal, they're business types, they've succeeded. Penn gets a lot of money from them, these Wharton School graduates, they're trustees, some of them, and yet... They're not uh, revered there. They're always under fire, seemingly. So let's see how this lawsuit, I say, it wouldn't have come up. uh, There wouldn't be as much focus on it, except for the fact of all that Penn has been involved in. One other thing about Penn that's regrettable, the uh, minority leader for Republicans in Harrisburg has sent a letter to Penn about anti-Semitism. And they're holding up the veterinary school $33 million is being held up in state funding until Penn meets a series of metrics here that I think are pretty specific around anti-Semitism, discrimination on campus, and all that stuff. Now, I love the Penn Veterinary uh, School, their outreach. uh, It wasn't Freddie, our current cat, but Gregory, previous cat, I've talked about it. They were as good as any hospital when it comes to your pet. I couldn't say enough about them. So I'm sorry to see they're caught up in it, uh, that that money's being withheld, because I think they do great work. The problem is they're caught up in this uh, because of all the nonsense that Penn's been involved. And this is a part of leverage at the state level to try to bring Penn into line with some degree of normalcy. So we'll tell you uh, how that ends up. On the broad scale, nationally, across the whole country, uh, here on Reading, Writing, and Reason with Dom Giordano, uh, we now see that 40% of the 22 million borrowers of student loan debt who had bills uh, due, remember, um, it stopped in October. It was put in all those years because of COVID, allegedly. And these people still have not made payments. According to a new report published by the Department of Education, uh, it says that uh, about nine million Americans who have payments due are not making them. The figure doesn't include borrowers who are still in school who are recently left and do not owe payments. So again, this is an issue. My advice to Republicans, though, it's an opportunity to go after a big college and how obscene college cost is. In addition to Uh, People that, uh, why should this be any different than any other bill? I think that's a fine argument to make. They're going to keep on jacking up the prices, and we're going to have this problem with other people who maybe are just middle class, lower middle class people having to fund all this stuff. And by the way, it makes it harder and harder when the touted elite colleges and the number one elite college with an endowment of about what is it? Close to fifty-two billion dollars. Harvard is now being investigated by the uh, department, the um, House Education Committee, and specifically their president, Claudine Gay, under the argument that she plagiarized a lot more of her work than we originally were led to believe. The allegation out there this week in her dissertation the president of Harvard plagiarized the language of her acknowledgement from the acknowledgement of another scholar without citing the source. In other words, allegedly, she couldn't even say thank you without plagiarizing the language. Look, this is not going to go away. It's not about her. It's not just about plagiarism. It's about out of control, big college indoctrination spending and everything that goes with it. That's why you're seeing this. One warning signal as we start to head into the real wintertime cold flu season and the like. There's a school district in Pennsylvania under fire because it returned to virtual learning amid an illness outbreak. The Charlery Area School District near Pittsburgh area said they were leveraging precedents set during the pandemic to address the recent flu outbreak. They closed their elementary, middle school, high school. It shifted to virtual learning in hopes of slowing a flu outbreak. The parents say, whoa, didn't we go down this path before? And also, uh, you made us send kids to school or you threatened us with truancy when some of them were legitimately sick with the flu or something, the aftermath of it. So why now are you going to virtual learning after you've screwed this up? The point being taken is watch for this stuff. Watch for more school closures. They cited the precedent of COVID. I thought we all said that was a bad idea, went on too long. All right, we'll have a lot more here on reading, writing, and reason. Coming up, we're going to talk with Pastor Joshua C. Robertson. He leads the charge in Pennsylvania of religious figures for school choice. That's next on reading, writing, and reason
1: Plan savings with three lines of T Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Today's program has been pre recorded.
2: I'm going to teach you. Hey, everyone, welcome into Reading, Writing, and Reason with uh, Dom Giordano. Pastor Joshua C. Robertson is one of the leaders of a big coalition of religious figures who are taking a very nuanced road. To get school choice, more choice for parents and kids. Uh, In an editorial that he wrote in the Harrisburg Earl, he just said the Harrisburg schools are not safe. I mean, isn't that the first criteria to be able to go to school and know that it's safe, let alone academically very sound? So uh, let's join, let's bring in Pastor um, Joshua C. Robertson to find out what this approach is that's going to get schools and politicians to see the wisdom of this, it's a unique thing to not beat them over the head, but to make the point how needed this is. Here's what the pastor told me. Pastor, welcome in. Merry Christmas, and thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you. Merry Christmas to you as well. I appreciate you all for just the opportunity to come on and share with you all.
2: Well, um, I feel your pain in this. I'm a former educator, pastor, uh, and uh, over the years— Uh, Here, you probably know in Philadelphia, but Harrisburg is smaller but has very much the same problems. We have about 40,000 people on the waiting list uh, just to get into various charter schools. We probably have a whole lot more that would want to go to some kind of private school of some sort if we uh, release them. Uh, You write that schools in Harrisburg are not safe. The district, which isn't that big, reported 154 fights, 31 assaults on staff, and 94 assaults on students. Students outside of Harrisburg are also experiencing the same violence. So that's the real baseline. I was a teacher for a number of years. If you can't go to school where there's not pretty much a good chance of violence or out-of-control behavior, you're not going to learn anything.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's really impossible— To think that a child is going to learn proficiently, effectively, and, and, you know, if the goal is preparing them to be scholars, to be academicians, to be, you know, contributors to society in a positive way, um, to be global competitors and global collaborators, if that's the goal, then the context and the environment that these children are in, you know, while they're being educated is vitally important. And it's hard to do that if you feel if the threat of, you know, potentially getting into a physical altercation or you are suffering the trauma of seeing those things done to other people. Um, and so safety is critical, critically important um, for our children. And, and I think that we need to just be very honest about that, speak the facts, compassionately knowing that I do believe that people, even in those settings, are trying their best to educate. Um, But, you know, ultimately we got to figure out solutions uh, because trying our best, you know, just doesn't get it done.
2: You also write in this editorial that uh, per pupil spending now has increased to $21,263 in 2021 to 2022. Overall state support of education is up 55.7% over the last decade. And that's been one of Shapiro's things in some of these deals uh, to up that even more. And you have uh, skin in the game in that you established the Rock City Learning Center for students age 7 to 18. So, what do you then, from a religious point of view, bring in all this and also education, what is it you think should be done and why isn't it being done?
3: Well, I think that there needs to be a robust offering of education providers. Um, the, the reality is, the legacy of the United States is is really hinged upon our creativity, our collaborative spirit, and the ability to operate within a free market. And but we don't use that same genius that we have that makes us the United States in education. Um, and and the reason why we don't do it is because education in the United States is a partisan issue, uh, when it should be a nonpartisan issue. The reality is, as a Listen to this alarming statistic. There's 195 countries in the world. We ranked 121 out of 195 as far as literacy. So education, period, in America needs reform. And it does not need um, for those who are in office, our lawmakers, um, education shouldn't be reduced to a battle between Democrats and Republicans. Education needs to be a nonpartisan issue where we're thinking creatively and collaboratively of how we can educate our kids and prepare them for a future that they can be successful with.
2: All right. Well, let's talk about that, though, because I have skin in the game, longtime teacher. I'm used as an education analyst. I'm a conservative. I'm a talk show host. And I would maintain uh, Republicans by and large, you know, I'm not saying all of them have uh, just the intended motives that we'd want, but by and large, they want to offer places like yours support uh, we want to have choice. That's, that's the major thing. And sadly, it's the teachers' unions, not the individual teacher. You made a good point that I, I've worked in school districts, very tough. It wears on you day to day. But the teachers' unions are opposed. They just want more funding for the public schools.
3: Sure. Well, I, again, that's why I mentioned the collaborative spirit, right? Because my thing is, however— the public schools are doing, there there are some children who are doing well that come from the public schools. So I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating those who do well. My thing is, what about the kids who are not doing well and and having services that wrap around them? And if the the answer to that was more money, um, the reality is we would have done that by now because we have increased in spending. In Mm -hmm. fact, Pennsylvania, I think, is ranked number eight in the nation um, as far as spending per pupil. Um, So it's not more money. I think the the reality is we need better education. We need – how about this? Instead of better education, I think that we should make education providers um, compete by giving parents the choice as to where they want to send their kids. Because if education providers had to compete for their students, then they would offer the best education. We're in agreement.
2: We're in agreement. And I respect you not wanting to make it partisan. But to me, it is the Democrat Party. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, Reverend, because you were a really busy guy over the weekend. They came pretty close, the, the Democrat Party of the state, to rebuking their big guy, the governor, who's someday going to run for president. And at the last minute, they didn't do it because he supports what you and I do, which is school choice. Mm-hmm. Sure.
3: And I mean, I I think that at the end of the day, I think people have to live with with their conscience and people have a set of values that they hold to. And some some are proponents of um, public school education. And I know that the dynamic of the teachers union is 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 significant in Pennsylvania, where I think Black Pastors United for Education has a unique role in this is our nonpartisan participation in this allows us to be neutral and try to bring both parties in the room to try to have meaningful conversations. Let
2: me ask you on that, though, because mm-hmm. I think that is unique. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you. But in that role, then, what do some of these, you don't have to name names, but some of these Democrats, particularly if they're African-American, I mean, what do they tell you? How in the world could you continue to support this When you have individuals like you and you run a school, et cetera, that get it, that choice is the only way out of this. Sure. I I honestly think
3: that it's it's more political than anything. I've spoken to several um, Democratic lawmakers who, if not, that they don't agree with school choice or, you know, or, or, you know, parents having the choice to to choose what school they want to go to. It's more so if they want to stay in office, they know what they have to do. And so I look at it and say, okay, well, if we inform congregations throughout the state of Pennsylvania that make up the parents and the community at large that, that really have a vested interest in our children being educated, and we inform them as the to the laws that govern education and empower them to vote in a way that protects education freedom, I think that that's how we can give those who are on the Democratic side the, the, the ability to stand up for school choice and not have to worry about, will they get reelected because of, you know, outside pressure.
2: So well,
3: the responsibility uh, is is not so much on the Democratic Party as it is on on building up a constituency of informed voters that will protect our interests at the voting poll.
2: Well, you're saying then make this one of the prime issues about whom you vote for. And I couldn't agree more, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or people uh, like you, they're involved in this, that ought to be one of the number one issues, the future of your child. And we both agree the only way to ensure that is to have a lot more choice, particularly in a place like Harrisburg, Philadelphia, Norristown. So, uh, Pastor, yes. I commend you. Thank you for uh, coming on. And uh, again, uh, we'll be watching. Keep us in your loop. Let us know of the next steps of what your group is engaged in. Absolutely. I
3: really appreciate Um, The ability to come on, you know, and and speak to this issue is near and dear to my heart. In fact, I believe that education is the 21st century civil rights movement. It is. Um, I I really do. And I think that, you know, there has to be reform. We're committed to do it. We're poised to do it. Um, And I just appreciate an opportunity like this to speak uh, on behalf of those who are fighting for change in America.
2: All right. That's the Pastor uh, Robertson. I think he's got an unusual idea i'm more blunt force on this that we need school choice but all hands on deck to get this to happen and we're still seeing it and we could see a major democrat governor that would be Josh Shapiro sign off on this if he does that's going to make a lot of news uh, coming up the heritage foundation jonathan butcher is a, a esteemed guest here on reading writing and reason and he wrote a piece recently about the success sequence. These are a number of things. If you do them, you're going to be a success in America. There's only three or four major ones. He thinks this is what the curriculum of schools ought to be telling kids to do. I agree, but it's not happening. So we talk next with a scholar from the Heritage Foundation, Jonathan Butcher here on Reading, Writing and Reason.
1: After the end of a good fight, Today's program has been pre-recorded.
4: I'm teach you. Hey
2: everyone, welcome into our weekly reading, writing, and reason. And one of the things we talk about a lot is parenting and success. Jonathan Butcher from the Heritage Foundation has been my guest on other issues. He recently wrote about the success sequence. You're going to hear him break down what that is for kids and how, if you follow these steps, You are almost certainly going to be a success in America. Sadly, though, schools don't want to emphasize these steps. They claim you might shame some people. Here's what Jonathan Butcher told me about the success sequence. Jonathan, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be with you. Before we break down the other elements of this, uh, my producer Dan uh, Jonathan says many times, you know, we were guaranteed this. You got to go to college, even if you ring up that student loan debt. We had posters on the wall, Jonathan, yeah. <laughs> saying success yeah. is college and all. Yeah. This. So, um, what's what's your take on that? As far as the sequence, is college a major part of that?
4: Well, what social science has found really for years, I mean, generations, is that children from intact married families have better life outcomes, okay? They do better in school. uh, They do better in their relationships with friends they're more likely to be successful once they finish high school. But then once you look at the wide swath of literature around healthy families, you start to realize that there really is a sequence to keeping yourself out of poverty, right? You finish high school, um, you go into the workforce, or you pursue a terminal degree, you know, or you enter college, and then you get married before you have children. And the research finds that among millennials, right, so the generation that now are the parents of young children, we find that 97 percent of them who followed this sequence were not in poverty during their prime working years. And even better, even better, there was a significant percent, regardless of ethnicity and race, who were actually in the middle class or above.
2: Uh, Let me bring up the student loan debt, though. Factor that in so they wouldn't be in poverty, but I don't think they'd be doing that well, though, right? Can we add that to the success uh, uh, sequence? Try to stay out of debt, the student loan debt.
4: Well, I mean, most certainly. I I think that the push for many years has been, hey, look, you've got to go to college if you want to have a job that will help you live in the middle class, right? And I think the success sequence, the results here, find that that is not necessarily the case, right? I mean, look, the fact is that some two-thirds of Americans don't have a bachelor's degree, right? And what you're asking today from what the Biden administration has been pushing is they've been saying, look, we're going to ask two-thirds of working-class Americans to pay the debt Mm of one-third, right? And among that, you know, one-third or among those that have outstanding loan debt, a significant number, I mean, we're talking half or more, have uh, graduate school debt, right? So we're talking, you know, doctors and lawyers in, in many cases. And so to ask those who decided not to go to college or who paid their way through college, to say, hey, look, you've got to pay for future doctors and lawyers. I mean, not only is that, you know, not fair, but, I mean, that's something that really should make voters very upset, right, with the idea that, you know, government is just passing this off. Well, right, And, and,
2: and Jonathan, you're talking to the first in his family to go to college, then I have my master's degree, and then I'm a law school dropout, so I didn't get to inflict those skills on progressives by using a legal degree, although someday I might. So I had to be paid for dropping out of law school, I think. That ought to be covered.
4: Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the big thing that, that this whole model that we've put together at the Heritage Foundation, which really is based on research that, that goes back to some terrific scholars from uh, the Brookings and, and the American Enterprise Institute and, uh, and others. And what we have done with this model uh, resolution that we put together is say that, look, schools should be teaching this information to young people.
2: Okay, let me me stop you. Let me stop you there because that's the major thing that I wanted to get into. And I'm a former educator, and you're exactly right. But how do they do that when that's in conflict? They're going to tell us, "Hey, if you say intact families, then their family is not." Things of that nature. How should schools exactly approach that?
4: Well, in the same way that, you know, schools that jumped on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon were pushing the Black Lives Matter Week of Action principles, right? For those that have followed the Black Lives Matter movement, they had 13 principles that they uh, foisted on schools to, to you know, celebrate mm-hmm. or whatever in, in, a, in a week each year. And one of those was that they uh, wanted to challenge the idea of the nuclear intact family. I mean, this, this then is the opposite, right? This is saying, wait a minute, that's not based on research, the idea that there's something wrong with saying that um, healthy families make for healthy children and healthy communities. And you're not shaming anyone. I mean, look, uh, people that have had difficult up- some people that made uh, choices that they regret earlier in life or may not, um, you know, the point is not to shame them. The point is to tell students, look, there is research here that if you get married before you have children and before that, if you make sure that you finish high school and if you enter the workforce, you are less likely to be in poverty and more likely actually to have the chance to climb the ladder of success. I mean, these are things that we should be telling uh, young people.
2: Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, my producer, Dan, uh, tells me, too, that you've been discussing CRT and DEI in the past. Um, so um, has what we've seen play out here, uh, Jonathan, with um, the anti-Semitism, with Harvard, etc. cetera, uh, you're on top of this, the research and all. Are, are we going to see an overall pushback? CRT is a little bit dormant as a topic now, but the the DEI perspective, is there going to be a, a, a reckoning on this?
4: Well, remember, DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, that is just the application of critical race theory. So critical race theory hasn't gone anywhere. It, is just, it has been applied mm-hmm. through DEI on both college campuses as well as, as in the workforce. I mean, it is, it is an $8 billion a year industry. Okay, in diversity trainings in uh, corporations across the country and and even the world. Um, So it is big money. Uh, Folks like Ibram X Kendi and uh, Robert D'Angelo charge, you know, upwards of fifty plus thousand dollars um, uh, for whenever they give some of these talks. Um, So I would say uh, we should keep your eye on uh, states that are going to follow Florida, Texas, Iowa. and now Oklahoma. Uh, just last week in Oklahoma, the governor signed an executive order saying that public money, taxpayer dollars, cannot be used for DEI programs that advocate for racial preferences. They cannot be used for DEI programs that violate the Civil Rights Act. And I think states are going to follow this. I think other states in the in the coming legislative session, they are going to be looking for ways to uh, make sure that taxpayer money does not pay for DEI programs. Wisconsin uh, just did this recently as well. So um, I think there is a very strong move against critical race theory, uh, and it is in the form of saying, you know, these racist DEI programs have no place in public life.
2: Uh, Back to uh, the success sequence. Is anybody – that would be a good starting point. If a school uh, adopted that phraseology, the success sequence – I mean, I've heard it before. You certainly are involved with it. But you don't hear that, at least in my sense, in schools – That nomenclature and telling kids from the very earliest time on how proven this is, how this is a guarantee.
4: Yeah, states are moving in opposite directions, depending on where you look. Um, Some examples that I use all the time are South Dakota and Louisiana versus Minnesota and California. In South Dakota and Louisiana, they've just recently updated, uh, both states separately, their social studies standards. And in those standards, they talk about things like freedom and opportunity and loving your country and understanding that America is Mm -hmm. not perfect, but still has, it it gives um, examples of people to aspire to be like, right? Uh, It gives kids something that they can aspire to. California and Minnesota, on the other hand, are pushing the ethnic studies framework, which is all all based around identity politics and is pushing critical race theory. I mean, they push the idea of intersectionality, which is the essence of sort of victimhood, right? Um, and uh, they advocate for Howard Zinn and his books, The People's History of the United States, which of course is um, all about being critical of U.S. history. So, you know, as you look at what different states are doing, we recognize that there is a, there's a cultural, um, you know, a cultural struggle going on about how we define what American identity means. And uh, I think there, is, there are some positive uh, examples here that, that I think more sage can look to, Louisiana and South Dakota being two.
2: Well, Jonathan, thank you. And again, uh, the more we can just use that simple, something that we all know, but the research backs it up, it is follow the science. And following the science, you're going to be a success in America. You almost can't help it.
4: Yep, that's absolutely right. And I think we can give kids something to aspire to.
2: Absolutely, thank you, Jonathan. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's great stuff from Jonathan Butcher. The success sequence. Uh, apparently, that sequence seems to be a bit off kilter in Upper Darby High School. Upper Darby High School. We've interviewed the superintendent, et cetera. It's shocking what's going on there. It is the epitome. I would say even nationwide, what a middle class high school that was excellent, successful should be. It was voted one of the top 200 schools of that type, high schools, at one time, and now it's fallen on bad times. Uh, Beth Ann Rossica from Broad in Liberty will join us to break it down, and it's not just about Upper Darby High School. It's about how does the school not maintain the excellence that it has? What are the forces that are driving it negatively? That's next on Reading, Writing, and Reason.
1: Today's program has been pre recorded.
2: I'm going to teach you. Hey, our final guest today, Reading, Writing, and Reason with Dom Giordano, is Beth Ann Rossi, who has great knowledge of the schools, writes about it at Broad in Liberty, great publication here locally. And she chose to center on Upper Darby, particularly Upper Darby High School, which has fallen on hard times academically, discipline wise. Here's what Beth Ann told me and parsed out some of the reasons why a school that was known for excellence has gone to these levels. Beth Ann, welcome in. Great piece. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Dom. It's always great to be on the show.
2: Well, uh, I am not one. And look, I could give a little bit of ground. I don't know about you on this. I couldn't tell from the column. This idea that teenagers have to sleep in, otherwise their brains too early in the morning. I mean, I've taught in some schools where homeroom anyhow was like 725, if you can imagine. So I could be a bit lenient. There's some science out there. That's one of the things that seems to be propelling Upper Darby, though, to the pits here.
0: Yeah, so to your point, Dom, there is a lot of research out there that supports a later start time for high school kids. And a lot of districts have looked at how to implement this. A lot of times what districts attempt to do is to start the elementary schools earlier and the high schools later so that they basically flip flop the busing because that is what yeah. the issue becomes. But for a lot of elementary school kids, you know, being out at a bus stop at 7 a.m. in the winter when it's dark is not a great option. So it, it is difficult to find the right balance of how do you start school earlier or start school later for the for the high school Um, but, you know, make it work financially with the busing. And that's why a lot of high schools have not moved to this model because they haven't been able to find the right methodology to make it all work. What Upper Darby did, though, was quite surprising to me that they basically decided that kids would come to school later. So in my article, you'll see that they actually start in-person learning at 945 in the morning However, they're still supposed to start school at 7.30 by doing online instruction, which we already know from (sighs) the failed policies during the pandemic that online instruction for the majority of children is not effective. So what Upper Darby, if they really wanted to change the start time – If they wanted to start in person at 9 45 then the school day needs to go until you know 4 30 to ensure that kids are getting the correct number of hours of instruction every day but i think that what they've done is such a disservice to kids because they say that the kids don't even have to sign in to the online learning that this is basically you know optional time to get online but they're expected to complete their assignments at some other point in time. So basically these kids are getting, they're they're getting such a short period of in-person instruction. And given the, the poor test scores, given how far behind the kids are from the school closures, it just makes no sense to me why they have moved to this type of schedule.
2: Yeah, it's camouflage is what it means to me. And look Beth Ann, I just said pretty glowing things about them. I don't know how many years ago that was. I knew the principal. He had me speak there several times. You may remember they were one of the 200 best high schools with some uh, demographic or parameters. In other words, a pretty good middle class high school education, pretty good resources, not overwhelming. And when we had the superintendent on, it was amazing how much that's changed. Is there anything that you think has happened there that made these kind of changes you talk about in your article? Well,
0: I do think that part of the changes that they made were as a result of the extended school closures. I mean, Upper Darby has serious problems. I recall when you had the superintendent, Dr. McGarry, on your program last March to talk about that letter that he sent out to parents uh, imploring them to, you know, get their kids to behave because they were having so many violent issues in the school. What I found interesting when I reached out to Dr. McGarry to comment on, you know, were they looking at the effectiveness? Because they, they instituted this schedule change over two years ago. So they're in the third school year of this schedule change. And I basically asked the question, what, what metrics are you looking at to determine if this is actually meeting whatever goals that you had intended to me? And they didn't answer that question. They have no metrics. They have no assessment. They have no data. They have nothing to say that this change is working or creating better outcomes. And so when they didn't answer that question, that's when I started to do my homework and a parent had sent me some right to know information. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking at their test scores, and their test scores, their proficiency has continued to drop year after year after year, and it, in particular, it's, it's dropped dramatically since they have instituted this schedule. In addition, their, their habitual truancy rates have increased at the same time that the profici- proficiency has decreased. So I mean, unless their goal is to have less proficient kids who don't come to school, <laughs> yeah. um, I would say that the, this model is not working well for these kids.
2: Well, what we do then is we reduce graduation requirements. I would indicate, yes. not that I have knowledge of but what happens to is, and I've been in some schools like this. Grade inflation happens. I taught in a school, and I had kids sophomore basic, um, uh, Beth Ann, that were mm-hmm. smart enough. And they would plot to do nothing the first three quarters, almost literally get an A in the fourth marking period, you pass for the year.
0: Right, right. So. Well, the, the, reduced, the reduced graduation requirements are, are also a big concern to me. And when I looked at the other adjacent school districts, so the, the state of Pennsylvania, the minimum requirement for credit graduation is 21 credits in the state of Pennsylvania. I can tell you that most school districts have a significantly higher credit graduation um, requirement. Philadelphia school district requires 23.5 credits to graduate. Upper Darby had previously required 26 graduation uh, credits for graduation. And they've, they've dropped it now to the bare minimum of 21 credits. Let's Um, stop right there. When
2: people hear Philadelphia 23.5 and you're at 21, that's a sign that something's up here.
0: Yes, I I agree. And I was, you know, and then you look at some of the, you know, more affluent uh, suburban districts like Haverford, they require 27.5. So we're not doing these kids any favors by reducing the graduation requirements. Now, the, the school district did respond to my request for comment on that. And they basically said that, you know, kids can stay and earn more credits. They don't have to leave at 21, but this allows them to um, enroll in community college sooner. And, and I asked, we looked at, I asked for data on how many students are doing this, how many students yes. are graduating early and enrolling in community college. And they basically said that they don't collect that data. So once again, Once again, you know, they, they have nothing to back up what they're doing. And that's really what my concern is. Because, listen, I credit any school district that tries to do innovative strategies to see if they can address the significant learning loss that these kids have experienced. So, fine, change the schedule and see if it works. But you're supposed to have metrics and goals and data that you're looking at to determine Are we getting our bang for our buck? Is this doing what we want it to do? And then if it's not, then you have the common sense to say, we tried this. It didn't work. We either need to change the model or go back to what we were doing before. And that is what I find incredibly disappointing and really irresponsible. This is taxpayer dollars. These are children's lives. These are kids who are not getting the education that they need to be successful later on in life. And to, to say that you're not going to look at any of this data or evaluate the effectiveness mm-hmm. is, is just unfathomable to me.
2: Uh, Beth Ann Rossica with us. Parting area, Beth Ann. Just your thoughts, because I appreciate them very much. Um, we see a stories out here with the Harvard Penn uh, presidents that uh, s- surveyed just in the last week or so that 20 percent of kids – at least according to the survey in American high schools, don't believe the Holocaust existed. I find that to be a pretty high number. What's your sense of, um, and apparently doesn't have to be taught in Pennsylvania in any form that I can see.
0: Well, that, that is a long conversation, Dom, but I'll give you sort of my short answer. I went down to D.C. last week to cover the hearing that um, then-President McGill testified at, and I listened to the students, the the Jewish students who spoke ahead of that hearing. And what I think that we are seeing, and I'm actually working on an article about this right now. It will probably be out later this week. But I really believe that the failed policies at our colleges and universities are now impacting our k through 12 schools so all of these teachers who go through these teacher preparation programs at places like penn and other universities that are not really focusing on how to teach students but they're they're focused more on different political agendas those teachers are now bringing those politics from their university campus into the classroom and I think that that's part of what we're seeing in K-12 through education, that revisionist history is taking place and our students are not being taught real history
2: any longer. That's a great observation. Look, I would think at a school board meeting right now, that would be a question every school board ought to be looking at. Hey, uh, superintendent, what are we teaching on the Holocaust? A simple thing. There ought to be a paper trail, right? There ought to be a curriculum that parents could find. And if they say, well, you know, it's all over the place. We really don't. I know New Jersey, because I helped with that, uh, had it passed that you had to teach about the Holocaust as if that would be something you wouldn't encounter through 12 years of school.
0: No, well, you'd be amazed, Dom, um, the number of things that not are not encountered in school. For example, if, for example, learning about the Pennsylvania Constitution. Most students go through their entire K 12 education without learning about the Pennsylvania State Constitution. So there are a well, lot. Well, you know, of things that's a great that one. Think,
2: thinking back to my high school, we didn't, and I think you're right because um, people have no sense then of what governs in Pennsylvania, in addition to the Constitution, you would think you would swerve into that a little bit.
0: Well, you would think, but you would be surprised that it is not, it's not mandated to be taught. And it generally, my experiences are, you know, unless you're in, an upper level, maybe a, you know AP history course at the high school level, you might get into some of that. But generally speaking, the Pennsylvania State Constitution is not something that's taught in our public schools. So all of these things really add up to sort of this perfect storm of teachers being selective about what topics they want to teach and what topics they don't want to teach.
2: Absolutely. Bethan. thank you. People can find all this at Broad and Liberty. We look forward to your article later this week.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Tom. Always a pleasure to be on the show. All
2: right, that's good stuff from uh, Ann Rosica. And it makes the point that I would make that we know what to do. And if you don't do it, we know what's going to happen here. These are not guessing games. It's having the will to put into play the things that work. Thank you for listening again this week. Thanks to Dan for producing Dom Giordano with you on reading, writing, and reason. You need a lesson, gonna bring it to you now.
1: We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? You spend a here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without autopay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee twenty-four monthly bill credits for walk well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. Thirty-five dollar per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.